Ladies and gentlemen, we are back for another Pie to Pie. I'm your host, Alex Coons, and this one is a big one. You know why? Because we went international, baby. <laughs> this was Meghan Markle meeting Prince Harry for the first time, if you know what I'm saying. We took a little trip across the pond. We sat down with the pizza pilgrims, dude. James and Thomas, big ballin' out there in West Hollywood. We sat down in front of the pool at their Airbnb. Shout out Soph and Gavin, who we also went on a pizza tour with a weekend before we had this interview. We hit all the spots. I'm telling you, these guys are the one direction of London, all right? I sat down with basically Harry Styles and Zayn themselves. They were dropping dimes on me. I'm telling you, I was thinking about this conversation myself I'm still thinking about it, and I almost had it a week ago. This is incredible. Their journey and their story is so inspiring. Starting, you know, on a six-week journey to pick up a tuk-tuk and drive it all the way back to London, popping up in that thing, modding it with an oven, and growing their brand to 25 stores. The 25th is about to open in Leeds. The branding, the idea, the story, the hard work, the perseverance, and the fact that they're brothers and they didn't kill each other, probably because Tom went to Oxford, so he is definitely civilized. I can't say that much for James. Just joking, you cheeky bastard. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the story goes that they had five pints. They drank and they came up with this idea for Pizza Pilgrims. They had an oh shit moment and they didn't know what they were doing. And I think that this is the beauty of the podcast is to hear stories like this one. And this one is taking an idea that somebody might think is impossible. Like how does that happen? Or I could never do that. And this is an example of how anyone can do anything with hard work and vision. And these two dudes have all of that, all of the above. I'm telling you, it was just a joy to be around them. The energy, the knowledge that they dropped, and I know you're gonna enjoy this one. Get some ketchup and mustard out because these nuggets of knowledge are gonna be real tasty, all right? They got nothing but bangers and mash, you know what I'm saying in this episode? Bangers and mash of knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom and James Elliott, the Pizza Pilgrims, Bruce Springsteen, Coldplay, Radiohead, Dave Matthews, and of course, a little band called The Beatles. Rock and roll forever. Enjoy this episode. Later. We are sitting poolside at the Pizza Pilgrim's mansion in <laughs> West Hollywood. How are you guys doing? We're very good. We're very good. We went to the game yesterday. We went to the Chargers game. They are avid NFL fans. Just yeah. huge. This thing? We've changed. You do this? You've, can, ch you've changed I can completely. throw that five yards and hit <laughs> <laughs> pretty much near enough where I want to hit it. We're American now. You're, <laughs> we live here. That's it. You're a li I mean, it's, yeah, I, I would fucking live here. Can I, move, so it? Can I move it in the back house? We were, we were asking so many embarrassing cook. questions. The guys in front of us yesterday were like... It's like, why, we're like, why is it three and five? Like, he's gone four. What? And the guy's just going around, he's like, he's just trying to explain to us. In like the 58th minute, James figured out that it was counting down in yards, not counting up. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, it it's a very complicated game. First down. First down. Four yeah. downs. Oh, I've seen, you, to get you've seen it before then. I've, I've watched a handful of football <laughs> games in my day. Yeah, it was quite a day. 
The SoFi Stadium is crazy. Crazy bananas. I have not been, but hopefully one day. After our insane pizza tour, we resisted the urge to have a pepperoni pizza in the SoFi Stadium. Who, who, what, what was the restaurant there? You know, it was, it was like one of those restaurants that does everything. Okay. It wasn't like, it was like. They usually have like very, like big contracts. So like CPK, California Pizza Kitchen owns Dodger Stadium. So yeah, like, yeah. that's the, that's, I don't think, I don't think SoFi do branded stuff. I was imagining that pizza was going to be like, I don't know if you guys had this, like, you know, school pizza, that kind of like yeah. the square slice thing. Bomb. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it was just all unbranded, weirdly. Are you guys in any stadiums? No. In no. any of your shops? Never no, been no. in a stadium. Is that, that something cool, you'd want to do? I think so. Do they do that? Well, that's what Paulie G, Paulie G's in a couple of stadiums, uh -huh. isn't he? Yeah. So I've always sort of seen that and thought that was quite cool. I think we're like genuinely at least 10 years behind you guys in terms of like that kind of entertainment. And we don't, yeah, the stadiums are just, they're just, the food's awful. Okay. We're just, just starting to build stadiums now. <clears throat> where like food and drink is at the forefront of thinking about building it. But 90% of stadiums is like, if you can get a pie, a crappy pie, you're lucky. Okay. We talked a lot about like when we first started, the thing that happened in the UK that was big in London, we had this big street food movement that happened basically after you guys did it here. Um, and everyone went to little street food vans and under little gazebos and stuff. That's how we started. And we definitely had a chat about like how train stations and stadiums is kind of like, it's got a similar vibe to street food. It's just like lots of people walking past who want good food. I can mm. get on board with it. Well, it sounds like the stadiums need to get on board with it. They do. They yeah. need to start together. selling your pizzas for like $42. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The markup there is a little, a little bizarre, but mm -hmm. people will pay it. A beer was $17 yesterday. $17.50 for a cheap beer. You could go up. You could upgrade like to like more bucks. expensive beers. <laughs> yeah, what are the ounces though, you know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, they were big ass beers, right? I mean, they were they were pint a pint basically. So what's that in ounces? I don't know. Sixteen ounces. I don't know. Sixteen. It was a pint. Six. Yeah. A pint. Sixteen yeah. ounces. Yeah. It One was not like was it wasn't like a big, It wasn't yeah. a big gulp. Uh, usually it was you a, get like a donkey. It's like a twenty-four ouncer. Good value no, no. was the massive Modellos that we were getting outside yeah. the stadiums and the, the yeah they tailgating. were good tailgating is the answer yeah. Just get blacked out before you get to the game, so yeah. then you're like at brown level when kickoff <laughs> yeah. happens. Yeah, we did jelly shots and everything in the tailgate. Yeah, it was, got pretty real. It sounds like you guys had the experience of a lifetime. We did, we did. Uh, well, why don't I ask my first question since we're five minutes into this? <laughs> yes, uh, we have covered. Yes, yeah, so we covered NFL. <laughs> I mean, we're off to a good start. Uh, so, what attracted you to pizza, and who ultimately taught you guys how to make it? Okay, good question. Uh, I'll take this one. You do it. Cheers. So pizza, I went and worked. I did a pizza making, uh, sorry, I did an uh, Italian cooking course <clears throat> in Italy, like in my second year of uni. And I went out to Tuscany and we were like, I spent two weeks working in a restaurant basically. And they were using a pizza oven. And so the original idea was to come back to the UK and build pizza ovens in people's gardens. And the, the strap line was gonna be, it's like a barbecue with a roof. <laughs> because it rains all the time in London. Um, and then we decided not to go ahead with that idea. And uh, then you were working in advertising and I was in TV and this street food thing had started. And we suddenly decided no, that we had this idea to buy a little three-wheeled tuk-tuk in Sicily, in the south of Italy, and then drive it all the way back to London on a pizza pilgrimage to learn all about pizza. And then get back to London, put an oven in the back and start doing events, basically start doing street food. Um, so that trip 
was meant to be 10 days and we got in the we got in the tuk-tuk for the first time and it went 16 miles an hour top speed and we hadn't factored that in at all so we ended up taking six weeks to get back um and we just had the most amazing trip just sort of yeah. you couldn't you weren't allowed to go on main roads so we had to drive all the little back streets all the way back through italy and um yeah we just learned so much about italian food and italian pizza um and then we got back and sort of set up the pizza thing so that's kind of how it started was there an oven in the back of that car when you got it? No. no. So you modded that you modded that out yourself. We we contacted the guys who make it, a company called Piaggio, and we're like, "Could you put this pizza oven in the back?" And they were like, "Categorically, you cannot. It will not work." And so we just ignored them. We did it when we got back, but we drove all the way through Italy without it. Um, and I think you know it's probably worth saying that we did Italy. We had you know we really didn't know anything about pizza. I mean, I can send you the picture of the first pizza I ever made, <laughs> and like a sort of three year old could do better. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, we, we drove to Italy. We had no concept of like the different variants within Italy. And then we just got to Naples slightly, sort of knowing that pizza was a thing there, but not really being like, okay, this is the this sort of OG pizza place. And we went to Damocheli and had a pizza. And from that moment, we were just like, that is what we want to do. Like, we want to create that. Mm. And we just didn't exist in London, really. I mean, there were one or two places starting to do Neapolitan. But like, when you have it there, and like the freshness of the mozzarella and the tomato, yeah, we've we've sort of been trying to recreate that experience. The freshness of the mozzarella thing in Naples. Like you've you've not been to Naples. Not been, not been. When you go to Naples, when that happens, and you taste mozzarella. So I went at one point I went and worked in a pizzeria in Naples to, as like a sort of stage to go and learn about pizza. And I was work I was helping them make the dough and this the mozzarella guy comes into the kitchen with the thing on his shoulder and he goes like Are you the English guy? And I was like, Yeah, and he goes, Come here and he like cuts a piece of this mozzarella off and goes like taste it. And he was like, You'll never have this. <laughs> Because it's like it's made that morning, and then it's you eat it in the afternoon, and it is different, isn't it? It's just, it's just got this amazing acidity to it that you, you kind of lose as it gets older. Do you make mozzarella in California? No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you make it with curd, you know, but like the curd is from Wisconsin, and that's yeah. how you, yeah. you. I'm not like, I'm not making. I'm not like making my own curd with uh, rennet yeah. and whey and shit and yeah, boiling yeah, yeah, yeah. milk and stuff. But, but we like, had we had a burrata on our pizza tour. Yeah. Where will that have come from? Well, that, that could is that have made come, in the that US could have, or is that? Yeah, no, that could have come from Wisconsin. Or yeah, that's yeah. where like most of the cheese comes cheese from. Is, yeah, that's the cheese heads. <laughs> but uh, there's California companies, there's other places right. that Colorado, there's places that make- Because most of the pies we ate were low moisture mozzarella, right? Yeah, I mean, like uh, the the oh. industry standard here, for, as far as I'm concerned, best cheese you can get is, is a grande, Grande cheese, and that's like Grande. a very like uh, Italian family, yeah. Wisconsin cheese based cheese. But people use Saputo and Baccio, and there's all kinds of cheese companies. Yeah. But most of that cheese, I think, is coming from dairy cows from Wisconsin. Right. And so, like Daniele uh, Pisana, yeah, is he using American cheese or is probably he not? I mean, like the the like real deal like Italian dudes obviously like are going to, you know, and they freeze the, it. And ship it from the. From I don't Italy. know if it's ever frozen or if they like they. they you know, have you? Are, are you going to see him? We're, we're going to go see him after this, apparently. Oh, really? Going to go see him because we. Yeah, he. I think, I think we use the same mozzarella supplier, and I think they vac pack the mozzarella and freeze it in Naples, and then they ship it. And yeah. it ships really well. Like, You're going to have to let me know. We've looked into it, which I'm still looking into it as to whether it's better to ship it for London frozen, because it does it does capture that freshness. Better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but. Yeah, and, and Pizzeria saved, definitely. That was obviously a... Yeah, that I, was I'm, definitely I'm, I think they're a Latteria Sorrentino company as well. I don't know that, but I think, I think they 
because these guys, the, the guys in Naples, who are like Caputo Flower, Latteri Sorrentino, who are the biggest mozzarella supplier in Naples, they ship to like, is, I mean, 90 countries? It's big, it's, it's big numbers. All over the world, they yeah. ship their mozzarella to. Yeah. So I think it must get here. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure certain people use it. Yeah. 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 Ah, we were promised something. There it is. Oh. In LA. Here we are. Uh, tell me about your parents growing up uh, above a pub, because I read this and I want to know, I want to know what it's like growing up. Where did you live proper above a pub? Ever since you were like six? Like the most idyllic, like if you think of sort of idyllic English countryside, it's called the Cotswolds. Okay. And it's just outside London. And we, it was a village pub. And it was, it was, yeah, exactly as you imagine an English pub to be. And we lived upstairs and it was a great way to grow up really. Like just surrounded by the locals. And apparently I used to like break out of my bedroom and go downstairs to the pub after my mama thought I'd gone to bed and be like sitting in the bar having a lemonade chatting to the locals. So, <laughs> I think I think that was a big part of, totally. of I think big part of how we've ended up in restaurants is because we grew up around them. Yeah. And I you know I, 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 my mum and dad started the first pub that we lived above and I think our dad was sort of running the bar my mum was very much in the kitchen mm. and it was very much like a hands-on hospitality experience. Mm. Then they separated and my dad went around pubs in London. My mum carried on in in the country pubs. Um, and then when we got to an age, we, we ended up working behind the bar in them. So I think, I think uh, our dad said sadly no longer with us, but our mum is sort of equally proud and disappointed that we've ended up in hospitality. <laughs> she like worked, get out of food. she worked her nuts off to like get us to you know, school and make sure that we had every opportunity. And it's like, <laughs> hey, so we've decided to go into restaurants. And I think she is, yeah, she's kind of like, that's awesome. But for God's sake, couldn't you have been lawyers or something? So, yeah. Will you want your kids to go into to restaurants? That's the big question. I, that we could, then there'll be like third generation question. restaurant people. I think everyone should do it for a bit. Whether that becomes like your absolute like raison d'etre, TBC. But I think if every single person worked in a restaurant at some point in their life, the world would just be a happier, better place. Yeah. Agreed. Because it's like, it, it's such a big part of like understanding the both sides of the sort of the service piece. And if you've never had that, if you've only had the everything brought to you on a plate thing, you just, just also, as a manager, as a, you can go into the restaurant business young and have so much responsibility at a young age. Like you can be 21. We have a pizzeria that's run by a 21-year-old. He's got a team of 28 people from all over the world. You know, he's managing the people side of things, totally. the financial side of it, hospitality side of it, tricky customers. And he's going to be coming out, you know, in those, he didn't go to university and he's going to, the, to college. And like those three years he spent running a restaurant, he's gonna come out so much more streetwise yeah. and like whatever worldly. You, whatever you end up doing, those skills are gonna be useful. 100%. To you. It's like sort of university, I know it's a university of life, sort of just understanding humans and like how they work. And then, you know, that's the same whether you're selling, you know, billion dollar contracts or $10 pizza slices. Yeah. But we have a problem in the UK at the moment of finding like, finding great people to work in restaurants. Do you have the same thing here? Like, is it I think that is a complaint that most, most owners have, yeah. That that's no one wants to work, or you know, it's hard to find good people, and you know, that can definitely be a struggle. I mean, one restaurant is one thing, but you guys have like twenty five, so it's a little, it's probably a little bit more insane to employ that mm. many people. Uh, but I, I I I struggle with this because I think you know, there's there's just this slight feeling that like, oh, you know, Gen Z or whatever you want to call them, you know, they have they don't have the same work ethic or whatever. I just, I think you can't say that. Like, it's our responsibility to find a role and a job and a business that works for them because they're looking at us and go, yeah, like you guys work too hard for not enough benefit. Yeah. Like, 
I'm not going to follow that path. I don't want to. And that's fair enough for them. So we've got to find a way to make it, you know, make sure that we, we're a company that has the values that they share, that makes sure that they're learning all the time. We've got to work double hard to make sure we're providing them with something that's useful to them. And just going, they're not working hard enough. I think it's just a cop out. It's just not true. No, I mean, I, I agree completely. I feel like it's like a, the same thing people have been saying forever. Like, yeah. oh, they just don't want to work. My dad used to tell me that shit. Like yeah. when I was working it's at a grocery store shit. in the 90s, he'd be like, yeah, he's like, you well, you don't want to get a job or it's like no one wants to work anymore. <laughs> and it's like, it's just something like, it's, it is a cop out because it's like, really, I think what younger people have, have realized is that they can ask for more. After COVID too, specifically, like yeah. the workforce came back and was like, you know what? I you used to ask what can I do for you and now people are saying what can you do for me and yeah, that's yeah. and that is that has made it tough to hire but it has also made businesses have to run better care more and totally. offer more and like it, it can be tough and it's hard on the bottom line but like yeah. at the end of the day I know you guys are super team focused and like that's what it comes down to it's not the customers it's it's making sure that opportunity is there for for your team. If we obsess yeah. about anything, I think other than the pizza itself, it, it is the team and like how we look after the team. Yeah, do they enjoy it? How can we make that better? And our feeling is, if you can get the team happy and engaged and excited to be part of what you're doing, the kind of customer bit sort of delivers itself because they're going to be there, engaged with the customers and wanting to do a good job. So yeah, that that's that's certainly where we focus. But yeah, it is really hard. I mean, I think you know, not that necessarily people aspire to it, but you're competing with for kind of casual work, which is what, you know, many people in hospitality are doing. You're competing with a, you know, a, a business like an Uber or, a, you know, in our case, Deliveroo, where it's like, yep. I can get up in the morning and go, you know what, I don't want to work now. I'll start at seven. Yep. Click, I'm on. Yeah, you know what, I'm tired now. I'm going to stop. Click, I'm off. Mm -hmm. None of this, like, my week is mapped out for me. Yeah. I think, you know, it's like, it's like when I talk to my son who's nine and I'm like, we used to have to wait till 9 p.m. on a Friday to watch a show. And he was like, he couldn't even get his head around the concept that it's like not delivered when you want it. Yeah. And so for that generation, they, they don't want to know that I'm working on Thursday at 7 p.m. They're like, well, I'll see how I feel at Thursday at 7 p.m. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah. And I, 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 I totally get it. Yeah. Like, you know, Netflix has changed the way you consume content. And yeah. I think some of these jobs will change the way people work because they can do it completely to their demand. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's always going to be a nice thing in a pizzeria, at least the ones that I've been in, is I, I was always attracted to it as a musician because of how flexible they always were. And, and just restaurants in general, like as long as you got your shift covered and like you were a responsible human being, yeah. like there was that flexibility. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah. shit, I just, I just booked a show and it's tonight at nine, can you cover me? And, and that was always an option. Yeah. And like, I always had bosses that were like, hey, like if it's a super emergency, like don't worry about it. You don't have to come in. And then I would pay that forward. And if you needed me to stay twice as long yeah. the next yeah. week, I was there. I think that's one of the things that restaurants does offer in terms of employment that others don't. If you arrive into a city like LA, a city of non-LA people from LA, as we found out last night in the stadium, because there were way more Chicago fans than LA fans there yesterday. Like I said. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. It's mad. But like if you arrive into a city and you, knew no, you know no one, if you go work for Uber or something like that, you're just not going to meet people. So that, like working it. in a restaurant, like you, you instantly get plugged into a community and like, and you have a, a, a instant friendship group. Yeah. So you yeah. suddenly you're like, you're in the city immediately. So I think that community sense that you get in a restaurant is great. I think that the family word is quite dangerous and can be a little bit sort of like, yeah. <laughs> a little bit toxic, but um, 
that yeah. community, that feeling of being like a group of you all working together that are all going to cover each other's shifts. Yeah. And like, if you can create that environment where people want to help each other and make, make a sort of a good culture like that, yeah. well, it's, it's a, a great place to work. It's a team thing, isn't it? It's, a, it's about being a team and learning what being in a team is and exactly what you just said of like, I'll, I'll sort you out this week and next week you'll sort me out. And that's how, that's how humanity survives, right? Against yeah. all the others is working together. Yeah. And another thing that's changed is that match. We talked about it when we were in your pizzeria. I, I mentioned that you have, you have a really good mix of like male and female pizza chefs, which mm -hmm. is sort of, you know, historically it's been a sort of male driven thing. Of course. And we were talking about how more and more women in the kitchen is just, it's it, what yeah. it does for the balance of the, the way the, the room feels. If, you, if it's just a sort of completely male dominated environment, you get that kind of macho energy that comes in, whereas that balance is so important. Yeah, it's, it's like really the, just diversity. I mean, I I've, I've just find that women, well, I know, because my wife is much smarter than me. And, me too. And just, uh, there's like usually like less ego. I don't know, I don't know what it is, but uh, I would, I would, I would, I would, I'm trying not to get in trouble, but I think I'd rather work with women than, mm. uh, than men, nine out of 10 times. Yeah, I just think in a restaurant, you see it more clearer than most places. That if you get too many of the same kind of person together, like the mix of like genders and ages and nationalities and cultures, that's when you get a really great team. Like we've, we've tried to put more we're trying to get more older people into our teams. And we find that, that that energy of having like a front of house person or a chef that's like 40s, 50s, mm -hmm. maybe even 60s, just brings a different energy. It does start to feel a bit more like a family, less, more, less like a sort of frat house kind of environment where everyone's 23 and all partying. It's like the, old, the older characters kind of look after the younger characters and it creates a... I think the fun. crucial thing here though is, is diversity. It's yeah. crucial to the team. So like if you had an all female team, an all male team, uh, yeah, I'd probably uh, run into some other things. I, I think I, I just think it's about having that like that mix of like all yeah. the different parts of society working together. Some that, nice people, some horrible people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean to balance it out. I mean, yeah. like I think you're hitting, the, uh, I think you're hitting it on the head there because it, it's bringing that those different energies together, making yeah. it work together. Yeah. And like in a kitchen, the reason why it kind of gets fucked is that like there is those pressure moments where it's like. It, tickets are just printing out you're having that bear moment you yeah. know and like God. people are about to fucking lose their shit and and having that balance in there yeah not having you know <laughs> 12 23 year old helmets in there just fucking you 23 know? year old helmets I dude that. i don't know one of my do bosses you know used to call like you know be like get in the back you helmet head do you know what um do you know what the bear never had to do you know the bear's got that ticket printing the the bear never had with like all the delivery yeah. apps and stuff going on as well. I think he had it easy. It was, it was delivery. That, that scene where they turn on delivery yeah. and it's like. Oh, is it delivery that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. They, they turned it on and it just started firing tickets at them and they couldn't deal with all it. All those noises you hear in your sleep. Yeah, that yeah. Kind of that, with, with, I think with like toast now, you don't even have to hear those fucking things. It just prints right out on your POS <laughs> system. Yeah. God, those tablets. I would like dream about that sound. Yeah. We still have those. Ding dong. Uh, so you'll, you'll growing up in a pub, did you guys start drinking earlier than me? Uh, regular people? Uh, it's one of the things I think we're proudest of being English <laughs> is that we start drinking at about seven or eight. Yeah. Start having a few beers. Yeah. I got caught with a packet of cigarettes in my school bag when I was seven. I remember that being like 
Seven. My mum was like, pretty, what is going on? Smoking I, no, I, I think we were kind of like, I think I had them and it was like, so I've got of, cigarettes. It was like that kind of like, yeah. like show and tell thing you bring to school. Um, but yeah, we, we, we do start drinking sort of 13, 14. I think you start yeah. sort of drinking in England. I reckon that's that about right. right? You're the odd drink with your parents type thing. And then, that's nice. then not your parents. And then. I feel like that that would be like a little bit more healthy if that was like a regular thing in the United States where like it, because I don't know, did you ever like get drunk in front of your parents or did they, did they explain, ever explain drinking to you? Like, I hey, like f- you should, this is what alcohol is, is what it does to you. This is how you, it should be enjoyed. Yeah. I think by 15, 16, because the legal age is 18. Yeah. Parents are going, when you go on holiday with your parents and you're 15, it's like, we know you drink. Let's have, let's get drunk together. Kind of yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely happened. Yeah. Whereas that, yeah. I mean, that happens in America though, right? Uh, no, not as much as you would think it does. Uh, it's like, uh, no, but maybe I, there was always like the one family in like high school that like, like the dad, like, or mom, like wanted to be like real cool and be like, don't tell your parents. Like, and then like, they're like (laughs) down in the basement (laughs) chugging with you. And it's like, it's like, okay. I mean, it's definitely not in England. It's not, I'm not painting the kind of European picture. It's not like France where like you sit down and have dinner with your, with your parents and have a glass of red wine together with a bit of water in it. Like we're, we're definitely like stealing beer from the shop and like around the back alley. Like, do you remember that? Do you remember the age when you didn't like beer, but you pretended you did? Yeah. 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 I remember that I'll distinctly. Solution to that problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fucking keep chugging. I liked what it did to me. We don't have hard seltzer so much in the UK. I had quite a few hard seltzers yesterday. Yeah, there's that. There's a big boom in that. that yeah. Not, like White not, Claw really just fucking like It has not years landed ago. in the UK at all. No? Is yeah. America like drinking a lot less these days? Like, it, uh, there's a big I movement. can't speak for America, but I feel like there's a non-alcoholic movement in, in Los Angeles for sure. There's like uh, alcohol store, like non-alcoholic alcohol stores yep. that are opening. Oh, and okay, like yeah. More and more people are asking about like NA beverages or NA cocktails, and yep. I think the younger generation is. I mean, maybe they're. I mean, they're probably smarter than everybody. Alcohol does not is not healthy. Yeah, you know, and so maybe. Maybe that's a trend. Maybe that's a direction things are going, but yeah. It was not in evidence in the parking lot of the <laughs> LA Chargers Stadium last I have night. Never oh. seen, I have never seen a six-way beer bong before. That was, that was new. Oh there my was, God, dude. They were working hard to keep the fly the flag. Fighting a fight. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, listen. You, that is, there, there's a lot of more drinking than not drinking going on. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's question one. Question one. <laughs> what are we, an hour into this thing? Sorry. Uh, in your past lives, advertising, right? Yeah. Who's the advertiser? And then were you, you were in production? TV. Uh, did you work on Love Island UK? I did Big Brother UK. As a, little bit. As a producer? Yeah. Is that soulless work? Yeah, I quit. Okay. It I know horrible. you quit. Uh, but do, both of those things, I feel like... Um, could have helped you through like where you guys are at right now. Um, can you speak on like the strengths that maybe you brought brought into the pizza world and how the your previous jobs mm. like helped you grow? Well, we always talk about so we're brothers, and um, what? Oh yeah, I forgot that we just talked about our parents for like for half you an guys hour. Are brothers? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, we don't share any skills, basically. Basically, Tom is, uh, we, yeah, we, we kind of yin and yang on skills, which has been really useful, but we definitely meet in the middle on marketing and branding stuff and like the people bit. And I think a bit like what we were talking about earlier, like understanding people, I think advertising gives you that. You understand how people, what makes people tick, TV production, similar things. So I think we definitely came to the pizza world with like media experience. So like 
we, we it, it was just as Twitter was landing, has landed and Instagram yeah. landed. And we were like completely native to that, which I think at the time weirdly was, I think people were catching up on social media stuff, but we were like, yep, we absolutely need to be, you know, the first, that trip, that pilgrimage we did, we made it into a TV show. Yeah. So like we were always quite brand focused weird, weirdly, quite brand forward. Even yeah. though we didn't think we were going to build a, a, you know, a bigger company, it was always like, yeah, we've got to be telling the story. Present ourselves well. And I think, I think that's really true of, of, of your place that we went to uh, two nights ago. Like, I really feel like you've got a vision for like what it's about and what it's saying and like the name and the branding and it's just the feel of the place. Like it just, it feels together. And I think we probably didn't feel quite so together when we started. Yeah, good point. How old is Hot Tongue now? It's a year and a half. Yes, yeah, so really, it was God, pretty well thought so, out like, though, but I, uh, all those things are, were very, very important so that like there was a proof of concept and that it could, you could basically pick it up and put it somewhere it's else. super slick as yeah. a brand. Yeah. Thank you. And I think actually, maybe in the 10 years since, we're 12 years now since we started, the tools weren't as great to like, yeah. be able to be able to make content yourself. Like, you know, the kind of, the kind of laptop, the sort of being able to do everything off your laptop was there kind of, but it was still a little bit of a dark art. You couldn't really make a film on your phone that was like usable. Yeah. Whereas now like you can make a film in 10 minutes. It's yeah, just and it looks totally, beautiful. And it looks great and it's got that sort of energy and it's obviously got the speed of like, this happened recently. So yeah, but you know, I, I would never say, you know, I worked in advertising, but it was all kind of big budget, big brand TV advertising. Like it wasn't really sort of transferable skill. I think what was transferable was like managing a project and like, you know, having 20 things that need to happen by a certain amount of time and that kind of thing. I think, you know, yeah. I brought a bit of that to, James has a slightly more relaxed view of sort of timings, but at the same time, like the more I'm like, you know, just gotta get that done and get it off our plate, the more you're like, if we wait, it'll be better. And you know, there's the amount of times where I'm like, you know, let's just do that, it's fine. And then you come back three days later being like, what if we do this? It's like, that is exponentially better. Let's do that. I think the kind of cartoon version of our working relationship is you're more business-minded, more, more an analytical brain. Tom is high IQ, Oxford educated, experimental psychology degree person. <laughs> I went to a university called Leeds University, which is not quite as prestigious as Oxford. They don't print hoodies at Leeds, put it that way. Leeds, Leeds Uni, not so much. And I did That's popular harsh. and world music, um, which involved doing a sort of whole semester of just African drumming. So like, I didn't really get that. But I think that what I find interesting is the way that we work together is that sometimes Tom's more analytical brain in the creative aspect of our business is really useful and the critical side of it is really interesting. And then sometimes my more entrepreneurial side in the sort of more business aspect is really yeah. helpful. So it's, it's that good crossover. Is Bleeds there. across for sure. Great balance. Yeah. How uh, do you do, can I ask you a question? How do you do it on your own? That is hard, man. Uh, we, couldn't, um, we couldn't do it without. Yeah. I'm, to be completely honest with you, starting this podcast has really helped. Like talking yeah. to people like yeah. you. Mm -hmm. And selfishly, I think that's like kind of like where the vision of, of this was. It's a great excuse to like meet people um, because it has been very scary doing it by myself. Mm. I mean, like I'm... Uh, it's hard. Interviews on the internet has been very helpful. Uh <laughs> But uh, at some point you hit a wall, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, and obviously like my wife is like way smarter than me. Most, most of my good ideas are probably like regurgitated ones that she had first. And, um, but yeah, I mean like having somebody to like to bounce things off or have, you know, have that is probably pretty incredible. You talk about your, when we were on the, on the, the other day you were talking about your wife is like, she's very active in, in it in terms of like, she, in terms of like, 
bouncing ideas around, like maybe not the actual execution of it, but like. Well, I mean, it's something that's on my mind quite a bit. So I talk about it a lot. So, and and really when you own a business and other people don't like, you can talk about things, but like they usually just don't get it. You know, there's like a certain level that like they kind of top out at because like there's so much stress, like payroll, you're keeping your, like the team happy, you know, insurance, your your bank account having zero dollars and, yeah. you know, like all these things. And uh, there's an interesting contradiction in running restaurants where it's very like uh, it's a positive thing. And like hospitality and the, the outward focus is meant to be like hot tongues having an amazing time. But you've also got to handle like really stressful, intense stuff. Yeah. And that, yeah. that contradiction is quite hard to straddle. Like to one moment be like, yeah, hot tongue and we're doing this amazing pizza and isn't this exciting? And then, fuck, we've got to control labor. And like that, I find that hard switching sides of the brain, basically. Yeah, and I think that that's probably where I'm going to confide in my wife, like, hey, like, what the fuck are we going to do this month or blah, blah, blah. And and really, I'm I'm talking out loud, but it's, you gotta have that that somebody, that person is like, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to hear like, it's going to be okay. Yeah, you're yeah. going to get through this. And I know like you guys have gone through like some shit. I was talking about like how fucking what a nightmare my build out was, but I was reading some things about like you guys like bought fucking 10 fridges and they all broke oh, and shit. God. And like, <laughs> Don't. like, like, can you, can you tell me that story? <laughs> that was great. We were building our first restaurant, first pizzeria. And, um, we had a very small budget. So we, we did the whole thing for like 70,000 pounds, which is, you know, that was definitely like, we're building the oven. We're using all the chairs and tables so that were in the restaurant from before. And we, it was like midnight and we had this like long list of things we still need to do. It's completely like catastrophic in terms of like project managing. And then it was, it was midnight and we were tiling the oven and this guy pops his head around the door. And this is in Soho, which is like, it's like, I'd say it's like London's downtown. Mm-hmm. kind of vibe and he just goes like do you guys need some fridges and we were so naive we were like oh you sent from heaven crazy that's, that's the next thing on our list you have fridges at midnight in your van awesome so we bought six full height like commercial fridges we couldn't afford a walk-in couldn't so we, afford a walk-in. we were like we, we're gonna have to do it and it, like we had to basically find the money for a walk-in pretty quick but and then the stairs going down this little tiny soho restaurant are like curved like that so we, like, we spent like two hours getting all these fridges down I was like, sweet, tick. <laughs> this restaurant thing's a breeze. And then uh, it. turned them all on, opening week, fridges were stocked. We had Evening Standard, Time Out, and the Metro, like the three biggest food reviewers all came in the first week. We got absolutely like plastered. Two stars from all of them. And the, uh, the fridges packed up on the first night. And it was just like, shit, all the dough just completely blew out. We yeah. had like queue around the door. It was, I don't know if you had that. We, people used to queue in central London for like restaurant openings, like no booking restaurant openings. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. for two hours, they'd wait for a barbecue or a burger or a pizza. Um, and it was an absolute nightmare. And then we were like, I know the way to solve this. We'll get the guy who sold us those fridges to take them out and give us some new ones. So we got all of them out and put five more fridges that we bought off Skip, was the name of the guy. <laughs> back in obviously they didn't work either <laughs> it's like and then we got a fridge third time would be stupid <laughs> fridge technician came out and like opened the back of it and was like this is like a frankenstein of like eight different fridges oh, like no. impressive here yeah it but was, it's just full of those little those little things resilience is such a big part of getting through a first year of a restaurant i would yeah. say like more than any kind of like planning or skit it's just like can you deal with 
shit coming at you can you from laugh, every direction. Can you laugh at that? Yeah. It's the big it's the big key. Yeah. <laughs> and if you can't do that, I would I would, you know, no matter what your budget is, I would say it's just it's just the, that's just it. It's just death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. But I think it's the it's the it's the resilience. And once you've been through all those experiences, when you feel like sort of battle hardy is when you start to feel more confident in your in what you're doing. Absolutely. Like yeah. Having done all those. We, we were very keen that when we started, we did every job. Like we knew, we knew, we knew our business back to front. Yeah. We knew how every single part of the business operated. I feel like quite a lot of people come invest they get investment and then they just they don't I don't they feel like they the do end. the hard yards. They and skip then to the end, yeah. There's sort of up. consideration that that's that bit's sort of, you know, not important or easy or whatever. And I think understanding it. But also we tell our teams regularly, like important to remember that we're not saving lives. Like we're making pizza. If the fridge blows up and you have to shut, yeah, it's shit, it's annoying, it's frustrating and we'll miss our target or whatever, but no one died. So let's just put that in perspective. I love it when you have those moments of clarity when you're having like a really intense conversation about like what kind of tomato you're gonna use. And yeah. you're like, it's getting quite heated and you're basically, no, but I really think this one. And then you kind of take a moment, you're like, wow, this is, I don't think other people are having conversations yeah, this intense Yeah, some people are working about. in A&E and it's real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think you have to like go through, uh, you know, eight fridges blowing out, and like, uh, you know, uh, all these writers coming to to check out your place for you to have that kind of attitude where you can say, hey, if the restaurant, like, if all the dough's fucked and like, you know, no one's coming in, just shut down. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. you have to go through that because there's some <laughs> owners that I've met who's like, they just, they can't shut down, and everything is taken way too seriously and I think that you know you can't yeah but yeah. I, you know we've touched on it already but I think that's why The Bear is such a great show because it really encapsulates to me like it's almost triggeringly so like how intense that like opening a restaurant is but it's also in the context of like actual problems in other people's lives and it's yeah. just it's such a brilliantly put together yeah. thing because it's so bang on the money of what that experience is like but it is in the grand scheme of things it's just a restaurant well, it's interesting, like, life already comes with so many fucking struggles. And yeah. then, like, to open up a restaurant, you kind of invite a lot of shit into your life. You and a lot of avoid, people yeah. don't understand that, that, like, running a restaurant is like a small ecosystem and you are, uh, you are in charge, you know? Like, if, if it sucks, it's on you. There is the other weird thing with restaurants that you, like... We're not saving lives, but you can kill someone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is like a really like is, weird thing to yeah. have to like <laughs> deal with. It's like yeah. you need your EHO, your health safety needs yeah. to be yeah. really high. Yeah. Because it is possible to kill someone. Yes. Yeah, right. I think we we, you know, not really obviously laugh and matter, but we were not good at that stuff. That was not, you know, we're the kind of like, yeah, just look forward always. And actually having the team around you now who are obsessed about that is yeah. you know, it's it's essential and important, but it's just so interesting to look back and be like, God, you know, we were not on top of this as a, as a priority. Yeah. Whereas now, like, it is kind of the first conversation that anyone yeah. is having in a pizzeria is like, is it safe? Yeah. I almost was going to skip this uh, question, but we, because we were kind of touching on it, but uh, I wanted to know it, early on, it seemed like you guys understood the importance of content, like getting that TV show started. Um, your content today is fantastic. Um, is there a goal that you have when you create that content? Or it's like, actually the, or, or where you where you see it going in the future too. I don't know. I think it's the thing that we probably think about or sort of. I think that's the bit we enjoy the most. I, but certainly, I I love making it, and so I don't think it's really a strategy there. I think that's. I, I'm also conscious that if we make it too much of a strategy, you'll lose what you're doing. Like, yeah. I think it's just as we're growing and we're becoming a bigger business, and you know all the serious things we think about. 
that little content world can just be this lovely space. You still feel like a startup street food van when you're making yeah. those videos. And yeah. well, that's just the nicest part of the job for me. We're super it. lucky to have you though, who, you know, if, it, if I was doing this on my own, the content would be, it would be awful. But it's one of the benefits of having two founders because not enough, I don't think enough founders are still running their social channels as they grow. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's, that's 100%. People want to hear from the people who started the business. Yeah. I think that kind of like TikTok social media manager content that you just see through immediately, jumping on trends, all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. like, it's not storytelling. It's not, it's, it's vapid. It just kind of like, it just kind of good word. wafty. Yeah. That was a good word, wasn't it? It was really good. Where did good. that come from? Super impressed with that. Um, yeah, it just doesn't feel authentic. And you can tell, I can tell it a mile off when someone's like, yeah. got someone in to do it. Yeah. 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 No, I think I, I think I know what you're talking about. It feels very stale. Yeah. Crisp and good looking, but mm -hmm. yeah. like, oh, that looks like- They all use the same language. Else. There's yeah. a few phrases that everyone hump uses. Day. Yeah, it's hump day, go and get a pizza. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what people want to hear is like, the fridge fucked up. Yeah. And like the, the, the people, yeah. social media managers don't have enough. It's not their fault at all. They just don't have enough authority to like, to like show the warts and all the scars and the stupid stuff that happens. Yeah. But they need it to be polished because that's how they're, you know. But then I do love the ones where they obviously, you know, the really big brands where they give them the the, the space to like yeah. really push the edge. So like the Burger King one, you know, yeah. that the Kanye tweet is still the most retweeted of all. Yeah. Um, so, you know, where, where I do kind of like that when they when they have the full right to just be like really funny at the right moment. Yeah. But 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 we have a, we have an airline in the UK called Ryanair, mm -hmm. and they just like they take all the complaints that people make because Ryanair is like a budget airline. Yeah. And they just rip them to pieces and just like, yeah. you know, like your your toilets were dirty on the plane. He's like, well, you should be lucky that we're not charging you. Yeah, for, yeah. Like, you paid $20 for your flight. Yeah. You from me? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, get flogged. And yeah. it just, you can't touch it. It makes you untouchable. They yeah. are untouchable as a brand now. It's, on, it's on like Eminem, dude. Be rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> In eight mile. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He disses himself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The story goes that after five beers, you thought up this crazy ass idea to open up this pizza empire, right? Uh, uh, yeah, not the empire bit, just the van bit. The van, <laughs> the van. So the, yeah, we well, that's what I'm getting to. That's we dream pretty small. So it was just, it we had a hundred more beers up there. We're yeah. gonna do this street food thing. Yeah. So like stories like your guys is, it always kind of seems impossible. Um, and so like, what was it inside both of you that drove you to like to keep expanding? And like, was there this vision of like, yeah, one day we're gonna have twenty five of these. One day we're gonna have fifty of these. I one day we're no, gonna be the biggest fucking pizza I, chain in London. I have no fucking idea why we have twenty five restaurants or how that's yeah. going to be. Like, it just was not. I really don't want this to sound like like a line or trite. Like, it was so not on the agenda. It was. It was like I think we. I, I think you thought that you'd we'd start a pizza street food van because I was miserable working in television and that would kind of set me on my path. Tom was about to become a doctor. You were about to do the fast yeah. track thing to become a doctor. Then I realized I'm slightly scared of blood. It wasn't going to work <laughs> no, out. That's not, but um, I but think yeah, you were going to do six months and then you'd probably go off and do something else. I thought that we'd probably stop doing the pizza van and I'd get a job in a restaurant business somewhere. And I don't know. It's like I think we both saw it as like, let's go and do a thing that we can say was our thing that will get us into industries we actually want to be in. Right? Yeah. And so that, that, that was, and genuinely, like, you know, I quit my job uh, and we're like, I'll do a summer. So I think I quit my job in May and I was like, I'll go till September. 
and then by September it was like, okay, now we're doing these festivals, it's bigger, like, you know, I'll do another year and then and then it just kind of really did. We had never no, actually had that conversation. Let's no. try and figure it out now. Why did we, but, but why I guess, did we? I think genuinely because, you know, if you said to us in 2012, your target is to get 25 pizzerias, it would have felt so daunting that it would never have happened. It would just be like stupidly big, such a big thing. Whereas like, I think because scale was never on the agenda, it was never a conversation. It was never like, when are we going to get to a size? Yeah. It, it just kind of did genuinely happen. Yeah, we did. We did. I think the there are plenty of routes that could have, would have been perfectly happy with. Yeah. Like, it, was so, it was definitely not the end goal. I think another thing that was, I remember actually talking about, and I had forgotten about this, we were both so miserable in our jobs and we felt so like, we completely, there was no freedom. You were, you were working, working for the man kind of thing. I think we had this like, sort of drunk on the ability to just do it. We could make decisions and just do it. Whereas before working in big companies, you'd have ideas and they'd just be like, you can't do that. You can't do that. You could do it all the time. So I think eight years or so of working in that environment and then suddenly you rip the lid off and you start your own thing. It's like, we can do anything. Yeah. I'm a golden guard. And I think just, we just, we said yes to everything for five years. Yeah. Pretty much just through the joy of being able to go, we can say yes and we can just do it. But, but then I think the other interesting thing is if finance, if money is your financial motivation, if, you know, I want to get 25 because I think of all the money, I genuinely think if we had stopped at like three, we might make more money. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's just, it's never been a driver for us, but like the scale does not bring like this insane thing. You know, I think you said that we, after two restaurants, we were making more money in, right up until we opened our 16th restaurant. So that bit in the middle, mm -hmm. I think it's a good lesson of like, either open two and keep it super lean and tight and a yeah. little, yeah. or you gotta, there's a, it's a hockey stick. You gotta go, there's this bit in the middle, which is like you're building the team, you're building the infrastructure, and then it starts to come good later yeah. on. But yeah, I mean, obviously that's easy to say, but you know, the, the two is a lot more fragile, right? You know, if you have a, if you have a fridge go down and you lose one of your restaurants, yeah. that can be like existential. Yeah. Whereas, you know, so, so it's as much as it kind of can be financially thing, it's also very much more fragile and you're always going to be the person at the top being like, oh my God, I've got to go and fix this thing of, of, of a suddenly, whatever. But you know, it's, it's different, it's different. It's, it's definitely not an all, it's, it's black, it's not, you know, it's not black and white. I think it's- no. I think if you'd asked us in 2011, the year before we started, are you guys going to be people that have one restaurant or 10 restaurants? I think we would have definitely gone, oh, we'll, have, we'll be the one restaurant people, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's where we're No, I think that's exactly right. Anyway. The growth thing, like, you know, part of it is like, you've got to keep evolving as a business. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to keep great people and keep telling stories and yeah. like, it is a bit sort of, and once the flywheel starts, you've got to keep And I think, I think that is hard because there's, there's, I personally have a nice feeling of like, cool, that's done. We'll put a bow around that. That is done. That doesn't need to change ever again. And then you realize a year later that it's not for purpose anymore and you've got to take the bloody wrapping off and undo it and redo it. Yeah. And like, actually that feels to me like, not progress. It's like, well, we've done that. We've agreed that, but actually now it's not fit for. So I quite like the like, right, that's done. We'll put that away. We don't have to think about that ever again, but it doesn't work like that. Everything needs repurposing and re-engineering. Yeah. Yeah. But the reason, genuinely, the reason we, we've grown more, more recently is because we employ amazing people and they need opportunity. And if you don't grow, the, you know, your great manager or your great head chef or your great supervisor, like they all need to be taking the next step up and if you're not growing, you can stagnate. Yeah. They'll stagnate or they'll leave or. Have you had to go to investors, find money elsewhere for these, for these growth opportunities? Or are you guys like the only shareholders in this company? No, we no. did not spend our own money, which I think is a really good. <laughs> yeah. We ne we've never had that situation where 
everything's like that, you know, it's on that, it's on the house. Like, you know, our mortgage is up, yeah. up for like, I think that's a scary place to be. So I think we, we, from an early days, we, we didn't, well, we didn't have any money. <laughs> Shit, sorry. <laughs> it's actually the best possible way. It's the best structure for that, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, so how when we were, I, we, we, well, also when we started, we didn't have a, like, you didn't have a house to bet against. We didn't have anything. Yeah, we so we like, started the business on a credit card, the, the original Seven land. G's, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was, it was a credit card debt, but that was it. And then I think we, before we opened our first pizzeria, we took investment for that. And, um, and we, yeah, we've taken investment ever since. How um, many shareholders are, how, how many shareholders can you say are in part of the business? I mean, there are probably like 20 people who have some kind of shareholding. Yeah, okay. I would say in terms of significant shareholders, it's probably like five. Okay. Um, uh, and you know our chairman, for example, he he had ten percent of the business when when we started. Yeah. Um, or when we opened that first pizzeria, and he's still our chairman. He's been our chairman for ten years. And I think that's the thing about investors is like, I think they're quite often made out to be the bad guy, but that's probably because you know they're the people asking the difficult questions and like drawing the difficult lines and be yeah. like, that's not going to work. You're going to need to do. You're going to need to make that decision. You don't want to make for that. Um, but also that, you know, they're quite often people who've done it themselves. Yeah. And it, you'd be foolish not to listen to them because you know, they, you know, obviously you've got to keep your own identity and there are things that we've been told to do that we're like, absolutely not. That is not what we're about and we won't do that. But quite often, quite often they've seen it all before and you've got to. You've There's got always to, a seed of truth in there. Yeah, yeah. there is. Exactly. It's a bit like that you annoying parent. Yeah. That goes like, you God shouldn't do that. And like, I'm going to do it. And then they do yeah, it. And, and you're, you're fucking yeah. right. <laughs> God, <laughs> I should have <laughs> done that. Go but go, LA seems yeah. to be a really totaled your car. amazing place for like people just going, I want to start a pizza business. I'm going to get an oven in my kitchen and start doing it on delivery. And then like people seem like start, I think we always say like start really small, just start with the first possible step forward. Don't build this big idea in your head that's got a blueprint of like a 200 cover restaurant it needs to be like, yeah. it seems that people are doing like taking the steps up. Some, lots of small steps. To yeah, get. I mean, I think that it mirrors your story a little bit. I don't know if everyone starts off and is like, I'm going to open fucking 50 stores, you know. Um, but yeah, it's very popular right now. I mean, the, we went on a pizza crawl um, on Saturday and most of the restaurants that we went to all all started like either in their kitchen or on their porch. Yeah. And Super now they're cool. in brick and mortars. And th three of the restaurants we went to like landed on, you know, Bill Addison's 20 best pizzerias in Los Angeles, and that's crazy to do, so. Super cool. Yeah. James, I think you said this. I think I read this. So you said something about you've pushed a snowball like up the hill, and now all you have to do is kind of like make sure it rolls down properly. Is that me or you? I don't know. Sounds like a... I think the idea is like the early days, you feel like you've got a, we said yes to everything. It was all about like every little thing you could do to get that like ball further up to the top of the hill. So that it was like every, it was just effort, 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 and just like find more shit to get that thing higher and higher. And then once you get to the peak, it starts to get its own momentum. And almost you've got to, like the no's are more important than the yeses. And like, no, we're not going to engage with that. No, we've got to stop with that. You're just focusing on like what is important. How do you keep that thing that's suddenly got its own momentum from like veering off track? So it's a, it's a very different mindset the first couple of years to once you've got to that point where like, okay, cool, we're here and people like us. And how do we make sure that, that carries on on that trajectory. Mm. So in that journey of pushing that snowball up the hill and saying yes all the time, what was the hardest part about getting it to the peak to the point where like now you're kind of just managing it? 
You make it sound like you get to the peak and then it's just a little easy. Well, no, no, not not at all, because now that fucker is going like as fast as possible I, and there's no the, end in the, sight. The crucial distinction for me on that is that people say to you like, oh, how did you take a risk, like such a big risk to start a pizza, you know, a restaurant or your own thing? Actually, we didn't really take a risk at all. We started on a, on a credit card. We had no mortgage, no kids. Yeah. Like, I wasn't married. There was, no, there was nothing to risk. We yeah. were like in our 20s. Yeah. Whereas now it feels like there is a risk. Yeah. Like we've got this, we've got this thing that's like needs you know, it's just important to us and it's a huge part of our lives. And the risk is that we make a misstep and it goes horribly wrong. Yeah. And yeah. so like, I find for me, the risk is bigger than ever. So the da- I find the downhill a bit harder than the uphill personally. The other thing I think is good practice when you're starting a business is the flexibility. So not to get, not to write out, this is what I'm going to do over the next two years. Yeah. I think the best thing is to, to go through the open door, which is like, you know, Okay, well, you know, you, you try that route and actually no one engages with that route. So then you, you, you just keep, keep tacking, building. keep yeah. changing. And that is how you, that's how you keep moving. That is resilience and flexibility yeah. when yeah. you're starting out and go, oh shit, the thing I thought I was going to be building, it's not that, it's going to be this. Yeah. And then I think that is a great thing to do, but it is stressful because yeah. you kind of always got to have your, you've always got to be open to change. And I think that, you know, you, all you want to do is shut down and go, cool, we're doing that. We can focus on doing that. You've got to have your ears open to like, no, that's not going to work. We've got to do that. So that is quite... And you've got one of the best examples I've heard of in recent years, which, you know, I don't know whether you want to talk about it or not, but, like, you started your shop to be vegan. And you were like, this yeah. is a vegan shop. Yeah. And this is what we're about. And this is what we're going to stand for. Yeah. And you've had the presence of mind and the foresight to be like, as much as I believe this is the right thing for humanity to be doing, the world's not there yet. So yeah. we're going to focus on vegan, but we're also going to offer non-vegan. And we had so many moments like that. Of like, we're mm. going to do this. Oh, wait the world isn't ready or no one cares or they're mm-hmm. not going to buy that, we've got to change. And yeah. I think that, that to me is a great example of why Hot Tongue will be hugely successful because you've got to know when that's just not going to work right now. Yeah, yeah. hold and fold. Yeah. And being okay with like having then, an identity crisis. And yeah. put that and idea on the out. shelf and then keep yeah. make a collection of those ideas that haven't worked at that time because timing is everything. Like we had Agreed. a thing, we started, I was obsessed with this idea of a pizza box with two dobles in it at the, thing of tomato sauce and some mozzarella that came in a pizza box that you could come to the pizzeria. This was in like 2014. You come in and you can take all the ingredients home in a box to make pizza at home. Pizza kits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. pizza kits. Before they were like, were a cool thing to do during and COVID. We, we did that, we, did we it. developed the packaging. We had this whole idea, launched it for a week. Absolute dog shit, just like that. Nobody bought it and we're like, okay. And then when COVID hit, we went donk. And literally we were the first, we were the first to the market with a with a delivery restaurant kit yeah. and it just went, took off. So April, we, we sold the first one. We put up 50 for sale because we reopened our first pizzeria because we closed them all. So it was like, we have no idea what's going on. First of April, pretty much uh, 2020, we reopened our first pizzeria. We we're like, it'd be cool to do something that's more than just delivery just because we don't really, you know, we, we never it felt like trying to bring something more exciting to that. So we put 50 of those kits for sale on Instagram. We were like, we'll put 50. If we sell 50 in a week, that'd be cool. And we sold them in like a minute on that first 50. And we're like, shit. So we did 50 again the next day. I sold them in 20 seconds. And on the third day, it was like, okay, we have two options here. We either kind of do this the right way and like build the infrastructure slowly and we like slowly, slowly grow it. Or we just try and sell as many kits as we humanly can and then figure out how we do it. And so we put, uh, we put 1,100 kits up for sale on the Friday morning and we sold them all in 40 minutes. And it was still like our busiest hour know, It was that time in COVID when people were just at home and like you were just ordering stuff that you had no, that no one was giving a delivery date. So like I'll order a pizza kit, it'll arrive. I think the email that we sent out was like, this will be with you within the month. But was, no one was going anywhere. So it was like, yeah, almost it was like Christmas, like a surprise pizza kits were turning up. We will fulfill it by the end of May. I think it was like two months. And it came back to buying fridges again. 
Yeah. It was all about that, that whole game. So we had to have ice packs. And so we were trying to figure out how we could double productivity every, every week, basically. And so we just kept on buying freezers to make ice packs. And then, oh my God, the, oh my God, it's so boring. It turns out, you know, we, we basically thought if you'd buy a big chest freezer, like it's a cheaper one that we yeah. bought off online, and then you fill it with like ice, just water packs, you'd close it up and you'd come back 12 hours later and they would all be solid ice. So we, we kind of relied on that pr principle quite a lot. Yeah. And then you'd come back and open the fridge and it's like, nope, it's just slightly colder water. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out these are not industrial like yeah. blast chillers. Yeah. They're just yeah, home freezers. <laughs> and um, we, yeah. But, but that business, you know, A, it saved the company. We went from zero, like not even an idea, to selling 10,000 units insane. a week in like nine months. And if you made a mistake, like say you'd got the dough recipe slightly off or like the, the ice packs weren't quite cold enough. It didn't happen. It wasn't like in a restaurant where it happens to one customer. You'd get an email at six in the morning, be like, hey, my uh, the dough's overproved in the thing and it's everywhere. And like, it's all just complete. And then you'd know yeah. that you were gonna get 300 emails with the exact same thing. Yeah. And it felt, I actually loved it. I think we both loved it because it felt like startup again. It felt like that resilience, like just have a crack. Well, it had that kind of foundry, like all bets are off. Yeah. Like process out the window. There is nothing about structure. It's just like, how the fuck do we get through this? Mm -hmm. And so like we, that's, that's something that's quite our, freeing about it. And that, that was, it had a feeling again of like pushing up the hill again. Yeah. Like, all bets are off. There's nothing to lose. We've got to get this thing up here. Yeah. How the fuck do we do it? Yeah. And, and yeah, we loved it. And it, it was an amazing, I mean, it generally saved the business. So and yeah, also so it was a really joyful thing to be part of when COVID was so crap. We were like, that's the fun thing people were doing. We did a lot of like, I don't know, we call it people were shielding. Like people who had to like be set, like self isolating basically. Yeah, what Whatever. was that called? Is it shelter in place. Shelter yeah, that's in what place. we did. Yeah. So we were doing like, we were kind of, this lovely little marketing. If you were a vulnerable person who was sheltering in place, we'd send you a kit and we'd send your best mate a kit and then we'd send them a Zoom link so they could like wow. make pizza together. And like, it just gave us this like tool to spread cool. a bit of joy in like a really awful it was time. Really cool. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, like, to me, the meaning of life is service. That's why, like, having having a kid is so fulfilling because you are constantly serving that child. Not short of opportunities, you, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, something like that where you have a like a restaurant and there is a fucking global like crisis like that, and like, yeah, it's profitable, but at the same time, like, you have found a way to bring people together yeah. in like such a special way, like yeah. that. I don't that think it was beautiful. a time when we felt more like we were like genuinely making a difference when we were doing that stuff. It was, it was amazing. It was an amazing time. And it was, it was so amazing that we were like, well, maybe, maybe this is like going to be a bigger part of our business than restaurants is. Like maybe this is where, what we'll be doing in 2023. Yeah. Turns out that's not, that was no, not that happened. did not happen. Turns out people still want to get together yeah. and have a pizza <laughs> yeah. together. That yeah. is still a thing. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, but it was, it was an amazing, amazing part of the journey, I guess. Yeah. Partnerships. So we were talking about how I, I speak to my wife a lot, and that's kind of like the only partnership I ever want to have again. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like you guys are lucky because your partners, your brothers, and so like you kind of you're stuck with each other. And then you can probably do and say things to each other that maybe regular people wouldn't say to each other. Or, and the fact that like you have the same parents, you know, like you, you're lucky to have this, this bond that other partnerships wouldn't have. Yeah. Because uh, I hear a lot of, I hear a lot more negative things about partnerships than I, than I do having them. Mm. Uh, what is, 
what is have you guys ever butt heads or get into arguments or has there ever been like something that like has really fucked you guys up in the decision making like or where the company was gonna go i think we used to a lot early in earlier on before we had like when it was just me and you and it was just every decision every single decision in the business ended up at our door there was no like we didn't have anyone else in the business who yeah. was like of authority that could like tackle that stuff i think we were just a bit more clueless in those days and we just we were kind of muddling yeah. through trying to have make those decisions between the two of us and when we did butt heads we had no idea really how to sort of resolve it and then gavin who came on pizza tour who's also here somewhere upstairs um when he joined it was like i think a three-person partnership is really interesting and then we also have sophie so between four of us now as the sort of senior team at pizza pilgrims it kind of when it's a one-on-one -on -one partnership if you if you get to loggerheads there's no real way of resolving it but as soon as you involve a third person and then even a fourth person you can kind of you know you, you can kind of vote almost and so i think breaking that deadlock of a of a one-on-one -on -one partnership is not a fair pressure to put on it i don't think yeah to go like it's basically your opinion versus my opinion who wins that's yeah. just like not a good place to end up yeah so i think involving that third person who maybe brings a different dynamic of course so gavin for instance our managing director he's he's much more commercial and he comes from a much more like practical restaurant experience he's got 25 years of restaurant experience yeah. behind his belt so he is a great like breaks the breaks the deadlock for us yeah really well um we, we definitely do butt heads though i think i think i'm just slight maybe slightly just more belligerent with my point of view and so if, when we butt heads i just like dig my heels in more which is not always say that i'm right i'm just more belligerent because I'm the older brother, maybe. Well, you can also say, well, I went to Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> I've never said that, and I try not to. Hey, how you doing? Okay, well, what was, uh, when did you start developing, like, the backhouse team and uh, start thinking about those kind of things? Like, when, was Gavin and so Sophie, like, the first, first kind of Gavin part, came part of that? Much so later. Sophie came in very early, but in a very different, so we, again, you know, we had a lot of pressure for investors to be like, you're, someone needs to be on top of the finances. Like that's really important. Like it's non-negotiable for us. So we sent out a text, a tweet, being like, "Can we find someone to come and do?" How book? many stores did you have at that point? One. Okay. And it was like, we need someone to come and do bookkeeping one day a week, just to make sure that we're kind of on top of it. We're not missing anything. And Sophie, who had like really great financial background, trained accountant, the whole thing, she just had her first kid and was just like, she didn't want to go back to her super intense job from before. So she was like, yeah, I'll come and do a day a week and has just grown enormously with the company. She now does four days a week, but she's our finance director. And um, yeah, she's just a huge, huge part of the business, but it has grown the whole way. She always knew how to do it, but I guess we couldn't afford to pay her for her full, full time. Uh, and then Gavin, I think we got to like seven or eight stores basically. And we had a few, you know, challenges. And we, we, we basically had a moment where we were like, we're totally fucking out of our depth. We have no idea what we're doing. Like, this is so not what we set out to do. It's bigger than we could ever imagine. I personally was like, we have two choices. We either like just get the hell out, like sell it or just run away basically. Or we just go and hire someone who's gonna like absolutely like, take this in their stride. And, and so we did, we interviewed a hell of a lot of people. We found Gavin, he joined us as operations director. And yeah, it's just been amazing and that he totally shares our vision for like what we, how we want the place to be and like be very people focused and developing people and hugely obsessed with product and that kind of thing. But also brings like a huge wealth of experience, practicality and energy, 
a commerciality that we just didn't have. Yep. I think I think a pitfall that you see quite often in startup businesses is founders who don't know when to get the fuck out of the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and I think you know because they're backed into a corner and they're scared, so they're like, "I should be this person who can be the operations director and like structure all this stuff." I think we were really that was we were good at going like, "That's not us. We don't know how to do that. We yeah. need to we need to overhire in this space and get an absolute yeah. rock star in to come and be that person." And I'm so glad we did because. Yeah, and, and that, that set the standard then. From then on, it was like over hire, like just get so excited about the amount of talent and skills that you don't have that you can plug into your business. Yeah, And we've done that four or five times now and it's just, it's amazing. When suddenly you just, this whole part of your business you're worried about, you plug this person in and then three months later, you're watching it just flourish and like- It's crazy. Doing stuff that you could never imagine. And I think that's a, as a, that's a when you start a business and you can, if you can try and have that attitude of like, just being excited about other people winning is good. It's, it's uh, to me this, the most exciting thing that happens it happens at Pizza Pilgrims is when something you see something fantastic that's like bang on brand, like beautifully delivered, exactly how you've done it, and you had no idea it was going to happen, and it just happened, and you're like, shit, that's fucking perfect, and I didn't even know about it. Mm. And it's kind of the same with kids, like when you see them do their shit on their own, you're like, fucking hell, like he can do, you know. Do you mean Com actual shit when they do yeah. a shit? When they I do mean, a shit. Sometimes that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yes, You're like, in the toilet. <laughs> yeah. Look that's how a, big my shit is, Dad. Yeah. That is a big yeah. moment. Yeah. But yeah, those moments are huge. And I think, you know, it's, it's, I think you're right. I think a lot of founders are just like, well, if I didn't have a hand in it, then it can't be right because I'm the founder. And or I just three months later, they circle back and pretend it was their idea. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And we do a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, <laughs> Was the single most important thing to maintain healthy restaurants? People. Yeah. I know, hang on. I just said the word people, but there's a probably more in-depth answer. But yeah, that's definitely it. It all comes back to the people running it, for sure. Um, I, I mean, for me, like I, I am still amazed. Not still, but I, I was so amazed at the impact a GM can have on a pizzeria. I was like hands up when I started I was like well if you're in the right location you're selling a great product at the right price how how much difference could that person really make and yeah then, and I I was so wrong like it's everything yeah you can see pizzerias change in tone in vibe in commerciality like significant like 30 40 percent sometimes mm -hmm. just by having the right person in there doing a good job with obviously with the support of a team but uh, we used to um we used to, one of the biggest mistakes we, we used to make when we were starting out the first few restaurants was we tried to protect the team in the pizzeria from a lot of the kind of the, the heavy lifting, the detail in terms of the business side of stuff. Mm -hmm. We used to have this, this idea of uh, the reverse mullet. So the <laughs> mullet is a uh, business up front, party in the back. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the reverse mullet, which was our big sort of business strategy, <laughs> was party up front, business in the back. So it was like, do you know what? The GMs, the managers in the team, they should just be like hosting a house party every night. It should just feel like everyone's just having the best possible time. And we'll shield them from all the financial stuff and mm. the people stuff and the safety stuff for like, because they don't want to deal with that. They just want to have a good time. And we, we went along that technique for a long time, like way too long. And we couldn't figure out why people were maybe not staying with us that long or like the engagement there. And then when kind of when Gavin turned up, he was like, you fucking idiots, plug in all the grown up proper business stuff. Yeah. And that it, we realized that we were only giving the managers half of their job. And yeah. I'm, I still am surprised. I, I was very surprised at the time that what they really want to deal with is the meat of the, like, the business bit. They, they need all that financial reporting and they want to be, they want to have 
commercial goals and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that was that was a big change, I think, giving people the full role. Yeah. And making sure that it's their business. Mm -hmm. It's they are it's that is their pizzeria and they run it like their own business mm -hmm. is really what like gets people up in the in the in the morning and like makes them want to stay for a long time. Totally. Because yeah. like people want to beat their high score. Like there are so many like video game level metrics in, in restaurants. It's yeah. like you know, whether that's, you know, people retention, average spend, sales, labor percentage, you know, labor efficiency. Food safety score. Yeah, all Google of those scores. All I mean, of those schools. It's all like, how do I be better? And also, like, you know, when you've got a couple of stores, how do I be better than him? Yeah. Like, if you can create that into pizzeria, competition's the wrong word, but just a bit of like tension of like, well, how is he getting that? I want to get that. Yeah. And that, that works so well for us. And yeah. you've got to make sure it doesn't move into a kind of, toxic place of like you know of just aggressive but but you know it's it, it, obviously everyone's got their ups and downs and their flaws and their strengths and you know how do i understand that guy's strength is you know customer centric and he's getting amazing google stores how do i understand i was doing that so i can apply a bit here because i'm really good at managing the team and no one ever leaves whereas you know and then if you can get that like that learning to flow across across the bricks and mortar sites it's, it's huge for everyone yeah mm. What things got easier? What things got harder the bigger you got? It's oh, a great question. Just one thing. I, there's, the first Great. thing that jumps to mind is quality of the product. There's this weird, I think, absolute lie that as you get bigger, quality will dip. I think the bigger you get, the more opportunity you have to like use that resource. You get bigger spending power. Your relationship to your suppliers is more important. So suddenly they're giving you you know, you're making sure you're getting the good stuff and like you can take teams on amazing trips to out to meet your suppliers. I think we now have Domenico, who's basically our head of pizza, whose job is solely to go around the pizzerias, just making sure all the guys have got everything they need to make the best pizza. Like we did not have that when we had one pizzeria. We've also developed a process over the last 10 years that our kitchen is like made to measure. It's perfect for making what we want to do. So I'm really, I think one of the things I'm proudest of is that our pizza has got better every year. And we have things like the Doe Summit. We have 23 head chefs. And every year we have this whole day where everyone brings their versions of dough and we get a whole bunch of, and we, we have an opportunity once a year to completely change the dough recipe. And it, it means that our dough recipe is now the amalgamation of 10 years and probably 500, 600 pizza chefs who've come through the business and made their little mark and touched it. So I think if you do it in the right way, you can grow and get better. So the dough in your restaurant is not your own recipe? It's it's it is our own recipe, but it's everyone's recipe. Wow. It's it's sort of it tweaked tight. we tweaked it yeah. six months ago. Again, we moved to a different flour. But does the person who wins that competition, does that then become your dough for the uh so it's not a competition, shop? it's not like but everyone sits around and we go This is we, the best one. So the, the the last one was around uh protein percentages. Okay. So the chefs were like, We really need to move to the Caputo red flour because it's got the a higher, higher protein because we moved to a double fermentation and we were still using the blue. And so Everyone was just like, we want to get that, that we want the we want the oven spring, we want that yeah. crust to pop, and it's only gonna happen if we use the red dough. And that's more expensive. But because yeah. you set up the dough summit and you've got 23 head chefs all going, Yeah, we want red red flour, it's really easy to then go to Sophie, our finance director, and go, We need to use a more expensive flour because yeah. this is the decision. Th that was the outcome of the yeah. dough summit, and it's got like a rubber stamp on it. And it's like you it helps you make those decisions that are maybe not business focused, but product focused. It's great. I think that it sounds like there's a lot, a lot of we, not a lot of I in this company. Yeah, I think yeah. almost to, f 
to the fault sometimes of like, we might be better to just make some decisions, but we're like, well, what does everyone think? And how's yeah. he going to feel about it? And like, so we kind of just involve everyone so much. And it is great. And it, you always get the best outcome. But I think, you know, I think that probably leads me on to what I find the most challenging. And I sort of touched on it earlier of like, if I see a problem, I'm like, that's a problem that needs to be fixed. I'm like, it needs to be fixed in the next hour, like done, and we can move on to the next problem. And when you had one pizzeria, you could do that. It was like, okay, here's a problem. It'll be fixed by the end of the week. And then we'd have to think about that problem again. Yeah. Whereas now you can't do that. It's just not possible. Like, it, you know, everything requires, okay, so that's cool. So we've got to figure out process and a thing. And then we've got to run that through like all the various teams it'll affect, get their point of view, make sure that's all going to work for everyone. And then maybe we could consider rolling out that change in like three months time. It's that. Yeah. It's kind of like every, because if you try and do it the other way, everyone will like manifest it in a different way and you just end up with chaos. Yeah. But for me, I find that as a kind of, I just like, well, how, how is it going to take three months to fix that? We could fix it now. Let's do it now. Well, the example we had recently, we, we had this thing called Pilgrim's Progress, where every pizzeria has like an elected member of the team who's not a manager, who we, and we all get together quarterly and just talk about like the shit that's annoying. You know, how, what can we do that's better for the team at like ground level to just be a better company? So, you know, you always think it's going to be like big weighty things like pay rates or, but it, it's stupid stuff like, can we have aprons with pockets on them? Because it would just be really easy to have a pocket to put a pen in. And so like, yeah, okay, cool. Aprons with, po aprons with, po uh, aprons with pockets. That's great. Let's 100% do that. And you're like, cool, well, we can have that done by like next week. Right? Like, no problem at all. And then you kind of find out three months later that they're still like wrestling with a supplier to change. And I'm just like, that one should have been done in a week. It just, it just <laughs> drives me mad though. Cause oh no, but we've got a contract with that supplier and we use non-pocketed ones. So that contract expires in April 24. So we're gonna have to like, I'm just like, just call them and tell them we're not gonna pay them more money until they put pockets yeah, in yeah. fucking April. That was an example of like, that's a frustration of getting bigger. Is yeah. that, that should have been done. In Those a week. kind of things. You're yeah. just like, I would have solved that in two minutes. Yeah. And, and that's, that's because it came out of that and then it went to someone and then it, that put that, you know, it went to about two or three different people in the company and it should have been done in a week. Yes and no. I, I think partly it's, I don't want to say like, I'd have fixed it because I'm better. I think partly it's like there are a lot of people affected by this decision. And so we need to involve them and get their point of view. But inevitably that just means that like, it becomes like walking through treacle. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, if you're going to say something hugely controversial, essentially like, sometimes a sort of more dictatorial point of view will just get shit done better. <laughs> yeah. And like, it's like, nope, that's what we're going to do. Just get on, get on board and we're doing it. Yeah. And I think sometimes we go like, well, how would everyone be affected by this? And I think- There's some of the stuff that takes difficult. longer is about communication. You end up having to like, you have to put things like three, six months out because you need everyone to have it communicated to them at the right time. Because if anybody feels in that, in the whole company that they didn't, they, they were the last to find out or they didn't know, or, or, or even the information is delivered to them in the slightly the wrong order, it's an emotional hit. I get it. I, yeah. You know, it just, it hits you. Like, so it is so, it's such a sort of, sort of like orchestra. To orchestrate that so everyone feels like they're being heard and it's getting the information at the yeah. right time is a very delicate process. And mm -hmm. I think we're, we're still learning how to do that well. I don't think you ever nail that. Fully learn it. Yeah. I think that's the same in one pizzeria as, as it is in 10 pizzerias. I think people will feel, you know, it's just, it's, people are sensitive, everyone's sensitive to that kind of stuff. Do you guys have your own human resources, like HR? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably a team of pretty nice five people. Now, that's um, kind of our quickest, almost our quickest growing area is is, is that bit. Yeah, yeah. Because if you want to do it well, it does take a lot of manpower to like to, be to do able that. to make sure you're doing everything right in the correct way. Yeah. 
Do um, did you guys have like uh, some like a motivational or like an inspirational figure who like kind of like had done these things like a business person that like the like wanted to mirror or like was like oh man that this person did did it well like here you know some a book you read or a person you had I think for me it was um, there's this amazing family owned chain in England where they're, they're they're kind of like cobblers and like key cutters and they're like they're, they're they literally like their business was like fixing shoes cutting keys and they have I think like 1700 stores across the UK they're called Timpsons and they have they're still run by this John Timpson was a big part of it and his son now uh, James Timpson is the CEO now but like they had this insane people first strategy of like they had 1700 shops none of the shops have POS systems at all they're all like just tills you go do 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 clink and they have no ordering systems like all the managers in all the stores like know how many key fobs they need and how many all that stuff and then they each store is set a budget and if you hit that budget you, the team i think get 30% of everything above that and there's just an insane sort of people first trust in the way they did business it's is that, fine is that going to be a problem they fucking found us <laughs> they fucking found us <laughs> <laughs> get under the table <laughs> <laughs> oh, there um, we go, dude. Anyway, he, they just had an incredible culture of like the people at the shop floor know what's going on. We just need to make sure that we make their life as easy as possible to deliver that. And we got to meet him in about 2015, 16. And he just had everything that you'd want. And uh, ever, ever since, it's like, how do you give authority and ability to run your pizzeria to the team yeah. actually running that pizzeria? He had that really cool thing where every single member of, of the company had a 500 pound budget to fix any problem for a customer, no questions asked. So say like, I think the example he used is like, a woman comes in and she's broken a stiletto, but she's going to her sister's wedding in Spain that weekend. The guy who's, you know, who's, who's fixing the shoes can go, do you know what? Go to the wedding, I'm gonna fix this and I'm gonna get this shipped to you. I'm like gonna get it couriered to Spain so you will have it in time for your. Yeah. That's such a cool, like, that's just cool. You get to sort of be a sort of, cobbler shoe making shoe repairing superhero yeah and that's and a cool gift to give someone it manifests itself exactly it's like that's the person that's you know that's the waiter not having to go to his manager going like can we do this like it's just like you know you've got the backing of the guy at the top to be like fucking do this make it happen yeah and wh where the amazing thing about it is that they don't have as a company with 1700 stores they have no marketing department zero not one person in marketing because they're like the point is that story gets told a hundred times. hundred percent. And then, like, if you can facilitate that happening in real life, you just don't need to be like doing glitzy shit. Yeah. We have something in Pizza Pillman's called Super Kind Bombs, which is like, you're given, it's basically the same thing. The idea is that you can, to, to make a customer's day, you can kind of, you can use a, a, a budget to do that. It kind of came from, who's the guy? Is it Will Guardia? Guardia? Who, has, who did the book Impossible Hospitality? Have, yeah. you, have you ever read that book? Such a, and it actually it really turns up familiar. in the bear. You know, in the second season of the bear, yes. where they the, uh, he hears he overhears at the table that they'd had an amazing time in Chicago, but they didn't get to taste a hot. I think it was a hot dog, and so he sends out one of the waiters to go get a hot dog, and then he sort of turns it into this sort of like oak cuisine dish, and that's all based off that guy. He used to work for Danny Meyer, 
and he opened a couple of restaurants. I can't remember the name of, but um, interesting. I read Danny Meyer's book. I haven't read this guy's. This book. guy, he's like Danny Meyer's protege, and okay. the restaurant is very famous. You'll know it. But like, they ended up in the end, this restaurant ended up having a team that would just the whole job was to like research the customer, find out something about them, and like do something unbelievably hosp like hospitality focused around that. Like, yeah. And and they they every single booking would have like something happen at the table, which was like so personal and so amazing. I've forgotten why I was talking about this. I've gone on a ramble. What are we talking no, about? The, yeah, facilitating sense. the team with, through super kind bombs, which is obviously we don't really have bookings that yeah. big. So we don't have the ability to like. I think just, the Danny Meyer book in terms of that was definitely a thing. Oh, I mean, it was, is for everyone, but that book, Setting the Table, if you haven't yeah. read it, is just is, is an absolute 101 of how to do yeah. hospitality. Yeah, it really was a big part of it. All right, before the tree cutter comes back, I'll try to get two more questions. And you said 11 o'clock, right? Yeah. Okay, that's uh, like one minute. Uh, you have uh, you've you've uh, you've opened up so many shops at this point. Like, is there like a budget that you have for like what is the magic budget for like the startup money for your concept now? Like, what do you go in to market and say we have we're going to open this up and it's going to cost this much? What, uh, for uh, when we open a new restaurant? Yes. So you're opening up leads soon. It really it really got more expensive after COVID. It probably jumped thirty percent. So how much are we talking? What's so the we spent. Five seven five building leads, what slightly less full yeah. build out? Yeah, full build out. But that was that was taking on a site that was already a restaurant. Like the numbers are getting bigger and bigger actually on that, and that's because of are the restaurants getting bigger. Parts. Parts. No, the restaurants okay. are getting no, sometimes a, a little bit it's bigger. More money for the same thing, and I think it's part of the like you got to pump the brakes a bit for that. Just be like, this is just unaffordable. It doesn't work anymore. So you've got to make sure you're just not rushing to grow. Yeah, you've got to be able to call it. I think it, as you grow, there's more people involved and they just, you know, money to them is less of a thing, like, honestly. So, you know, I think, you know, you've, there's been so many examples where you've, because James still does most of the store designs and like you've gone in and gone like, that's insane that we're spending 25 grand on yeah, this yeah. wall design. We could do it for 500 if we did this. And it's, it's that better. old adage that like, as a team gets bigger, it doesn't get more efficient. Like, and so sometimes you have to reset and like, you know, we have a, there's now a designer and a project manager and a quantity surveyor and our own property manager building a restaurant. And sometimes it just spirals a bit in costing. You've got to go in and go like, we don't need that. Let's do that that way. Or like, and you know, sometimes spending less money is more creative. Yeah. Yeah. But it's easy to let it slip and suddenly it does just creep up and the costs get more and more. But I think there's also something we said about we're building better pizzerias now. When you, as the company grows, the equipment you need to give people to be able to do their job needs to get better because yeah. When you're a small, you're three little pizzerias and it's like everyone's just pulling together and it's a bit sticky tape and zip ties and gaffer tape stuff. That's all fine. But, you know, we, we're opening a pizza in Leeds, which is 250 miles from where I live. And so, like, if that pizzeria isn't really well built, it just, it's not going to work. It's just going to fall yeah. over. So the equipment is definitely better. So we're building better design restaurants, but it is getting more expensive. And, you know, the concept of a one million pound pizzeria is not off the cards now. Yeah. Which is Absolutely, considering we built the first one for 70,000. It's crazy. It's different. But it goes into it a little, so we have an appraisal sheet, which is like, you know, you, it's a little Excel spreadsheet that we've built and honed over the years that you put the rent in, you put the CapEx in, how much it's gonna cost to build, you put, if you've got any contribution from the landlord in, you put in what you think the sales will do, you put in what the delivery sales will do, and it sort of spits out the number at the end. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're in a position where we have a limited amount of money and we'll, we have to pick which one's going to... 100%. It's still very much a focus for us. Like, is this going to work? But 
you know, we do all this appraising and stuff, but ultimately opening a new store is a roll of the dice. Like every time is a roll of the dice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the amount of times that I've stood outside a site and gone, oh my God, we've totally fucked this. This is not right. Like, you know, the opening night or whatever. And you're just like, I just think this is the wrong location that it's flown out the gate. Or you open, you're open, you're like, oh my God, I'm so confident this one is going to be amazing. Like, and it takes a Pro- long time to yeah. get there. A property strategy is the most ethereal, impossible thing to achieve. I think because like, no. there's no way of telling. You've, yeah. still got to, you've still got to trust your gut. There's loads of like data points now. You can spend loads of money on like getting data. We, we have sort of like, you can get, is this crazy thing where you can get people's credit card payments and they can like map an area and tell you whether they think your customer is in that space. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy stuff. It's pretty creepy. It's pretty yeah. creepy. Yeah. And it sends you some weird dodgy options as well. You're yeah. just like, your gut knows that's not gonna work. Yeah. But so, it's literally like, you know, they'll they'll come back and go, you go like, so what cities could you open? And they'll come back and list like, the 25 most popular cities in the, yeah, city, in the country. No order. way. Like, that sure. is amazing, guys. Like, well <laughs> How done. much did we pay for that? That was 5,000 five, uh, five, 5, pounds. So you got to, there's a, just a lot yeah. of that kind of bullshit that goes on. But it is, you know, like the, the location and the feel of the space and like, it's all gut. Like, I'm sure if you had AI and like 20 supercomputers, you might be able to like eventually get to the hub of it, but you'll never get to the hub of it in our lifetime. Did yeah. you know, you just knew when you were opening Hot Tongue that you needed to open next to a foot massage place? Was that just like, that was the non-negotiable? That was the only thing I was actually looking for. I was like, there needs to be a foot place and it needs to actually have something to be like, you only live once. I genuinely and think, I by the way, doing a special yellow. pizza where you get a slice of pizza and a foot massage at the same time would be the most amazing collaboration. I did. I'm try- it's hard to get a hold of those people. They got people coming in and out of those doors. Really? It's a, they're, they're good people, but yeah. they're hard to get a hold of. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. The most important question of the interview, what is the greatest band or musician of all time and why? <laughs> well, yours is easy. You go first. I'll have a think. This is absolutely just no caliber for me. And that it's, <laughs> it's Bruce Springsteen. By a country mile, the boss, baby. The boss has got it all. He's got, he's got, he's got the Americana thing, but with like a full understanding of all the shit that goes into it. He's the best live performer I've ever seen, and he just loves it so much. Uh, and I've seen him in every possible type of venue, and you see him play for four hours and then be dragged off stage by either the authorities or the band who are like, we've got to stop. <laughs> and he would carry on for another four. And I just think it's just it's it's magical stuff. And I think. You'll be talking about him in a hundred years as someone who fucking got it in a big way. And I think also the thing that annoys me about him is he's so misunderstood. People think he's like this jingoistic, like American flag waving kind of patriot. And actually he is a patriot. Well, the whole born in the USA thing being used as a sort of anthem. He just overrides everything he's done that is so much more interesting. Hummingbird, we wanted to see one of those. So yes, Bruce by Miles. Brucey Bruce. Wonderful. So much so, like I've been banging about this for years and James has been like, okay. But uh, slowly, I've indoctrinated him to the point where he walked down the aisle to a Bruce Springsteen song. Incredible, tougher than the rest. Wow. Yeah, I'm a big. Like, just to show you how douchey this has got, how how obsessive it is. This year, we went and saw Bruce three times. We saw him in London, where we live. But because his parents are one's Italian and one's Irish, we also went to Rome in Dublin. So it's it's that level. That's where it's we're big. getting to. That's beautiful. It's big. I, I don't like. I don't have Tom. Tom is definitely has like obsessions of things that like, I'm much more, I'm, I'm, my Spotify discovery weekly is kind of, is, is telling me what I'm listening to this week. I, I love listening to new music. Um, 
Yeah. I think if there was one, there's this little band from Liverpool in the UK called the Beat the Beatles. Beatles? The Beatles. They're, yeah, yeah, they're gonna make it. They're they're doing good stuff. <laughs> they have some good stuff. I just watched. I've watched like three times now. I became obsessed with that Get Back documentary. I just mm -hmm. think it's the best. It's the best um, capturing of like a creative process and how like. I love that people always think the Beatles, you know, they were really overthinking it and the lyrics mean so much. Like, it was literally John Lennon completely stoned. Like, and they're going like, um, yeah, maybe red cabbage or a pomegranate, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, people are now like, like reading into those yeah. lyrics and they're literally just there getting, drinking tea, eating toast, getting stoned and going like, oh, I'm an octopus, yeah. <laughs> and like, they were just having so much fun with it. Yeah. That, yeah. And I think that is a good lesson. Like, they... They, they they were definitely enjoying themselves and they not really taking were. it too seriously, even though they were kind of sort of changing the landscape of music yeah, all at the same time. Yeah. God, I mean, the, the other, who's I'm, yours? In, yeah, who's yours? I was going to say my other obsession is Radiohead. That's why well, I have, that's why I'm THOM because of the singer Radiohead. So that was my like teen age obsession. Is Radiohead yeah. pre Bruce? They, they're Radiohead. Radiohead. They've they've they're reached, huge. They're yeah. huge. They're, they're massive. Big. In the States. They're very big. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the greatest shows I've ever seen live at Coachella. Oh, really? Oh, a good one. Which, what, what, year, what, what year was that? I have no idea. I went like uh, nine years in a row, and they kind of all bleed together. If yeah. you know what I'm saying? We did that with Glastonbury. Yeah, I was uh, there. Might have been some pills involved like... during that show. Yeah. <laughs> I was like on the grass, just fucking out of my mind. If I think about it too much, I'll get goosebumps. But yeah. it was really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who's yours? Oh man. That is so, it's like, this is the third time now this question has been fucking put on me. How have you not gotten on? <laughs> it's like the <laughs> last three interviews people have asked me. Of course you said So that. live, live I said, like, Dave Matthews Band. Interesting. And Never Daft Punk were, like, two of the best shows. The, when Isn't Daft Dave Matthews Band, like, like your Coldplay? Isn't they, aren't they, like, middle, like, you, you, you like want to, you kind of, a lot of people hate them, but they're yeah. kind of great at yes. the same time? Like, they're more like, like, like fish, like like an American jam band. Yeah. Like they can play like one song for like 30 minutes. But what I liked about their shows is that every, like, and a lot like EDM is that like all their shows are different. So yeah. like you could, I would go to three shows in, in a row and every show would be different. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I liked about them. That's but pretty good. Seeing Daft Punk when they were in the pyramid was like the most fucking crazy yeah, thing I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah. And that, I think just Daft Punk in general, like I got really into EDM. I like love techno music. Like, do you know the, remember the movie Hackers? Yeah. Yeah. In the 90s, like I loved all of those, all of like that soundtrack. I like yeah. Prodigy. Like I liked all that shit. Yeah. And then when, when Daft Punk like really blew up in 2008, I got like Ed Banger Records, no, you know, in, in France, like Busy P. Like, oh. because Dad Punk are French, like, dude, French house music is like, yeah, it's and, big. and yeah, Italo yeah. disco, yeah. like, I could listen to that shit. It's fucking, yeah. It's so good. the Pino D'Angelo guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. See, I can, I could listen to that all day at the pizzeria. Who's the, what's the, um, Phoenix, do you remember Phoenix? Love Phoenix. Phoenix. Also French dudes. They're French. friends, they're friends, they're all like homies, like all those dudes. And Sebastian Tellier, do you remember him? Yes, again, that's like Busy P, that's like the same people i'm oh, talking about so like 
okay. B- Busy P, I think, was the head of Ed Banger Records, and like there is so like everything that came out of there, like 2000, 2007, 2008, it was just like blowing my mind. Yeah, it's cool shit. Uh, but that was like the last time I was like excited about music. So oh really? You said you're you're in full nostalgia. I'm like now I'm in full nostalgia. I like I'll put on Justice like the Cross record, and I'm just like <laughs> fuck yeah, like this is the shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, that's just this cool getting older. I think. Yeah, and like, don't like. I'll listen to a new Drake album. I still like. I like love Kanye. I can. I like. I love Kanye's movie. His music. I love Kanye's music. (laughs) (laughs) So definitely subtitle Uh, that. But Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm like the same way with you. Like my, I'm gonna listen to everything from Celine Dion to like, uh, you know, Juice World's like fourth album that they've put out uh, after being dead. So. Yeah, I agree, and I've definitely open-minded but i'm like yeah but there's like niche bruce springsteen bootlegs that i've not heard why would i listen to some you other one year thing? between january to the end of may realized that you hadn't listened to anyone else but bruce springsteen yeah kind and of. it has it's got the breadth it can handle there's a bruce there's a bruce for every occasion i started i started a club night where we only play bruce for seven to eight hours and we before covid we got to a place where we had a thousand people coming jeez yeah it was big that's and then awesome. a lot of them are like 50 year old men who have no emotional outlet. So, like, we'd play <laughs> go like. there, just start, just fucking get black Honestly, you'd play and start songs crying. and they'd be like hugging each other and crying Dude, and like just kissing each other in that's, the face. And so do you remember that scene like, in Along Came Polly where he, they're playing basketball and like the, the sweaty yeah. Sasquatch? It was that kind of vibe. Like that kind of. Yeah, yeah it was gross. But, um, but yeah, it runs deep. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this. Thank you for I having know us. You have a beach day to get to. It's finally warming up out here. If you told me in 2011 that one day you'd be doing a podcast about pizza in LA, I would have told you you're a fucking idiot. So, <laughs> so thank you. Oh, thank beautiful. you for making this that's thing. Beautiful. Well, where can people go to get in touch with you guys? Uh, if they want to stalk you, you know, ask pizza you questions. Pilgrims. Let's get some more. Let's have, let's have some US Instagram followers. That would make mm-hmm. me feel Just really... At Pizza Pilgrims on uh, Yeah, at Pizza Pilgrims on Instagram. Yeah. Wonderful. And I don't have any social media, so I'm sure to email me. LinkedIn. LinkedIn, LinkedIn. Hit the LinkedIn, hit the Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Slide into those DMs. Should we take a picture to send to our mum that we're doing a podcast in LA? Yeah, you should. Hundred percent, we should. She's just called us. Like in this beautiful home. Yeah, that's insane.